Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Coming up on today's show, why tens of thousands of donated iPhones are destroyed every year. A rechargeable battery that will last for 400 years. And Alexa is listening. How to stop her. This week we're going to feature Daniel Stewart Butterfield. He's the co-founder of Flickr and also the co-founder of Slack. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, I'm glad he showed up to work That's today. That's right. Well, we got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Shirts. Last week I asked you about the address line of my iPad. When I'm looking at a site, it says not secure when I'm looking at DSLreports.com or not secure when I'm looking at ESPN.com as examples. When I put HTTPS in front of it to get secure socket layer, say on DSL reports, it returns to the non-secure socket layer site. I can't get a secure socket layer connection. What is wrong? What's going on here with my iPad? Well... Arnie, this is the thing. We're looking at a browser configuration. You can configure your browser to support secure socket layer or not. So you've got to go in and and configure your browser. I had no trouble doing it myself. If I put it in specifically, I can come up with the secure socket layer connection, but my browser is configured to support SSL, secure socket layer. And, of course, what secure socket layer means is that Uh, your browser and the website you're talking to set up a data stream that is encrypted so somebody who could intercept that data stream between the two endpoints would not be able to know what you're saying because they would only see an encrypted signal and they wouldn't see it in in plain text. So it's more secure uh, to use a secure socket layer, particularly if if you're logging into an account with, uh, you know, username and password. You want that to be protected. If you're not using a virtual private network, then that's the only encryption you got to protect yourself. So for instance, let's suppose, you didn't tell me which browser you had, but let's suppose you've got Internet Explorer. What you would do, you'd open the Internet Explorer, click on Tools, then you'd click on Internet Options, then you would click on Advanced tab, and then you could check or uncheck the options for Use SSL 2.0, Use SSL 3.0. You could, you could check both SSL 2.0 and SSL 3.0, and then it will use both of them when they're available. Then you click OK, and boom, your Internet Explorer will support the secure socket layer. Now, for instance, if you've got Chrome, you'd open up your Chrome browser, click on the Chrome menu button, click Settings, scroll down to System, or enter Proxy into the Search Settings field, open the Proxy Settings, 
Under the proxy settings, click on the advanced tab, and then you would check or uncheck SSL 2.0 or SSL 3.0. Same thing. Once you check them and use it, boom. Chrome is configured for secure socket layer. Now, the good news is Safari, which is the native browser in the, in the iPad, supports <clears throat> a secure socket layer by default. So you don't have to do anything there. So, uh, Arnie, you should not have a problem here once you configure your router or your browser properly. We got an email from Ken Hutchinson. Dear Dr. Schertz, could you explain why it requires such a huge number of hard drives and a special algorithm that had to be developed, several supercomputers, and years of calculations to arrive at an image of the black hole that was revealed this week? And was that image possible because the black hole's accretion disk is almost perpendicular to our line of sight? Thanks, Ken Hutchinson. Well, uh, Ken, let me. this will be a little bit of a longer explanation, but this is really interesting, so I want to spend some time on it. This was a huge breakthrough imaging the black hole this week. Now, of course, a black hole is a very dense uh, object in space. Say a star could collapse into almost a point and create a very dense, uh, dense space, point in space, with very, very high gravity as you get close to it. And if you've got a very massive black hole and it collapses, it could be uh, it, it could be create quite a distur disturbance in space. And it turns out the gravitational field is so strong around the black hole that not even light can escape. The gravitational fit it actually attracts light, the photons, and they cannot even escape. And the point of no return where once you go so close to the black hole that you can't get away from it because the gravitation is so strong. That's called the event horizon. Once you cross over the event horizon, you are gone. Wow. So when you look at a black hole, you just see like a disk with nothing in it because once they get into that area, you'll just see the outline of the event horizon. But once anything goes into the event horizon, you can't see anything. So the black hole itself actually is invisible. And the only way to see it is that Around the black hole, just as as mass is being ripped up, as it's being pulled into that torrent, it it actually um, glows, glows very brightly as it's being wrapped apart. And so that area around the edge where the mass is being ripped apart as it falls into the black hole is called the accretion layer. And so what you see is you see this black object in front of the glowing accretion layer. And no matter what direction you look, you're always going to, going to see it. Now, they actually imaged a black hole that, get this, was 53 million light years away. 53 million light years away. That means that the black hole that we were looking at, that light was emitted 53 million years ago, and it took, it's such a long distance away, it took 53 million years for the light to get here. That's really hard to wrap your mind around. That's a, isn't so it? it's 53 million light years away. Now get this, this this black hole, it's a supermassive black hole, M87, and the the mass of this black hole is equal to 6.5 billion of our suns. We take one of our suns, you take 6.5 billion of our suns mm. and put them in a point and that's this massive black hole. Wow. This is a huge black hole. So what they what happens is large uh, you know, large large constellations in 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 space, like the Milky Way, are the, the center of that. There's always a black hole. So these large 
um, uh, collections of stars like the Milky Way are always sort of organized by these by these black holes. Now, to look at this particular black hole is equivalent to viewing a donut on the on the surface of the moon. Wow, that's how much resolution you need. It's equivalent to to looking at a donut. Uh, on the moon. So you need a very high re- resolution uh, telescope to see it. Now, there's one problem when you're looking at an object 53 million light years away. Uh-huh. That light has got to go through a lot of space before it gets here. And it turns out there's so much space dust that the visible light never gets here. So you have to basically use longer wavelengths. So you can only see that far if you use radio telescopes that have longer wavelengths, radio waves, rather than visible light waves. And so they create, and the second problem is that the longer the wavelength, the lower the resolution. So the the the, the smallest object that you can see with a telescope is sort of proportional to the wavelength divided by the aperture or the size of the telescope. So it turns out if you have a longer wavelength to have the same resolution, you have to have a bigger telescope with a bigger aperture. And so when they did the calculation, what is it going to take to see this black hole 53 million light years away? It turns out that at the wavelength they were using, the aperture had to be the size of the Earth. Now, that's hard to make a telescope that has the diameter of the Earth. So what they did, uh, they created what they called the Event Horizon Telescope. They're looking to try to see this event horizon by looking at the, the black hole in front of the accretion layer. And so they actually took radio telescopes from around the world. Uh, there were eight of them, actually. There were two in Chile that they used. There was one in Spain, one in Mexico, one in Arizona, one and two in Hawaii, and one in Antarctica. So they took these eight radio telescopes and they... They figured if we could knit them together as one as one telescope, in other words, if we could coordinate the signals that they're receiving using mathematical formulas to, to make them appear like one giant telescope, then we could have something would have the equivalent of the aperture of the Earth. So what they did, though, they back in April of 2017 is when they took the data, actually, and they took the data over a week. And, of course— the Earth is rotating, so these all of these points are moving on the Earth. So they're actually picking up, they're actually filling in spots in the aperture as the Earth moves. And so over five days, they collected all of the data from these radio telescopes. Now, that was the signals coming in, the phase of it. You know, that's, there, there's a lot of data. They collected it all, everything. And they stored it on hard drives. When they collected the data for what, one week's worth of data from these eight telescopes uh, filled five was equal to five petabytes of data right mm. and that in order to, to store five petabytes on hard drives they, they, they had like you know terabyte you know 10 terabyte hard drives they had 10 t- they had they had half a ton of hard drives and there was too much data to send it over the internet so they just stored all the data locally at each one of the radio telescopes then they collected all the hard drives and and, and mailed them now so they had all this data from these, from these telescopes, but then they had to figure out how can we do a calculation because they, they actually had to adjust for any phase differences between the units. They had to do a lot of calculations. And in addition, this was a very sparsely filled aperture. 
So there, there was not a unique answer. It was, it's not like you could take that aperture and then calculate the image. You'd have to guess an image to see whether an image that you guessed was equivalent to what you would get with these radio telescopes. So it was an interactive kind of thing, and it took a lot of processing. And they developed an, an algorithm called CHIRP, Continuous High Resolution Image Reconstruction Using Patch Priors. And um, and this was a um, this was an algorithm that 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 had been invented by a um, I can't I can't remember who it was by by a young intern she was actually no, she was actually a PhD student at the time and she invented this algorithm and she led the the processing team there was so much processing to do with all of this eight petabytes of data that actually they had to get several supercomputers it took two two years of calculations. And they, and they were worried that maybe the the images that they seeded this as they were trying to do was kind of bias the results. So they had four independent teams doing it who would seed it in different ways. And so sort of the, the test was, did these four independent teams all get the same image? And they did. They did get the same image. And so after they had done all of this calculation uh, – they finally got the picture of the black hole, and it was exactly what theory would have predicted. They actually had the image uh, about three months ago, but they kept it under wraps because they wanted to actually actually have a big reveal. And so they had mm -hmm. the big reveal this week, and it's quite exciting because this is the first time that a black hole has been imaged. So this is actually a big deal, and now they're going to do further refinement of it, and they're going to try to figure out uh, some of the refined theories regarding black holes. This was predicted by Einstein a hundred years ago, wow. and it was all and it all matched up with his uh, with his calculations. But uh, keep your distance from the black hole. Yeah, it you, could work out badly. You, you, you don't want. Yeah, you don't. Now, one thing is, as you go into a black hole, you you uh, time speeds up. So if you want to go into the future, just jump into a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem uh, is uh, you, you'll never come back. So it's the present is scary enough. So uh, jumping into a black hole it's a it, you know it's well, a, how far into the future would it take you? Yeah, it's a it's a bad It's a mystery. It is. It it is a mystery. We need to find somebody we can dispose of to throw into a black hole so they can tell us what happened. Exactly. Now we got an email from Gina in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, a friend of mine had her Facebook account stolen. She's having trouble getting it back. Mm. Yeah, I, I knew somebody that had their face, Facebook account stolen, and they, they didn't get it back. They lost really? they lost all the pictures and everything. Yeah. You, you know, in their case, you see, you <clears throat> well, this is not – you have to have a trusted friend. So if, if, if your account is stolen and you've identified two or three trusted friends – who can uh, who can vouch for you? Then you can go through the trusted friend methodology, and your trusted friends can vouch that you are who you are, and they will revert the password and give it back to you. But this particular person didn't have any trusted friends and didn't have any way to prove that they were who they were, they, and they didn't get it back. Um, uh, so anyway, let's go back to Gina's email. So her so her friends also having trouble getting her Facebook account of, account back. So now I'm worried. About my account, it's something I can do to keep it more secure. Enjoy the podcast, Gina and Fairfax. Well, Gina, there are several things you can do to lock down your account. Well, first of all, you want to choose a, a strong password, uh, one that's easy to remember. Uh, you also want to choose a secret question that no one would know the answer to, even people that are close to you. Like you don't say, what's the name of my dog? 
You don't you don't want to you don't want to have a secret a secret question that somebody else is going to be able to guess because the secret question is a is is an avenue to change the password. So you don't you you, you want to have a secret question that nobody's going to know except you. Now, if you really want to secure your Facebook account, and this is what I truly recommend, is you enable two-factor authentication. If this is enabled, whenever anybody tries to log into your account, Facebook will send a text message to your cell phone with a security code. And then you enter that security code into the website and you're in. So somebody cannot log into your account, even if they have your password, if they don't have your phone. So two-factor authentication is the way to protect your Facebook account. Now, if you want to enable two-factor authentication on your Facebook account, it's easy to do. Log into Facebook. You know, click on the down arrow on the right side of the blue bar near the top of the screen. Click on Settings. And then in the far left column, there will be something called Security and Login. Find the line that's labeled Two-Factor Authentication and click that. And then you want to edit it because you're going to have to put in a phone number that they send to you. And boom, once you've configured two-factor authentication, you are good to go. There's a similar process where you can configure it on your mobile app, too. I gave you sort of the, um, the, 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 the computer version. Now, from now on, you will always have to have physical access to your mobile phone before you can log in. So just make certain you keep your mobile phone with you. We got an email from Andy in Leesburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I need help with my internet with an internet issue. Several websites that used to load just fine don't load anymore. They just sit there or and try to load forever or I get an error message. Most websites look okay. Just a handful of specific sites they won't load. I don't think it's a problem with my browser because the same sites fail to load no matter which browser I try. I also don't think it's a problem with my internet connection because all the other computers in the house load the websites without a problem. Can you help me fix this? My computer is a Lenovo laptop with Windows 10, Andy in Leesburg. Well, there are several possible issues that can cause this type of problem, but I think you've already ruled out two of them since you've tried multiple browsers and the other computers in your house are working normally. Now, one possibility is that your PC is infected with malware, which is, which is, hydra- which is hijacking your web browser, at least attempting to. Now, the first thing I'd recommend is that you run all the scans mentioned uh, that, you know, do all the scans uh, that, that you need to to check for malware, to track this down, remove any malware that might have made it into your hard drive. So that's the first thing you want to do, do a malware scan. Now, if that doesn't fix the problem, the next thing to do is to try flushing your computer's DNS cache, domain name server cache. See, when <clears throat> what this is, whenever you are going to a website, say like www.stratford.edu, it will go out to the domain name server it will give them that name of the Stratford site. The domain name server will send back the IP address, which is a number, which is a, uh, a binary number. It will send back the IP address to your computer, and then you'll use the IP address to actually go to that website. So the domain name system converts English, um, English domain names into actual IP web addresses. But what your computer does, it will store... Uh, that information. So suppose you're always going to Stratford.edu. Well, your your computer will just store the 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 IP address of Stratford University. So instead of going out to the DNS, it'll just read it internally from the internal DNS cache. So what happens is that you may have a corrupted DNS DNS cache 
cash, and it's and 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 so you're never actually going to the website. So so the next thing, and since this this is a problem, this these the, the, this is a problem that 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 you have only on some sites. It's, it it could easily be the DNS cache that corrupted. So you want to sign in to Windows as as an administrator. Then you press Windows Control S key to open the search box, and then you, to search you want to search for CMD. That's the that's the command window CMD. Then you right click on the command prompt and select Run as an administrator. So you want to run the command, uh, you know, the command window as an administrator. Now in the command box, there you you want to type a particular command that which is going to clear the DNS. Uh, the, the DNS cache. You write ipconfig ipconfig slash flush DNS ipconfig slash flush DNS, and you press enter. And that that i that that ipconfig command with the slash DNS will then clear your cache, and your class should be ready to go. And that ought to fix your problem. Excellent. We got an yes. email from Dave in Chantilly, dear Tech Talk. I took your advice and replaced the hard drive in my laptop with a solid-state drive, SSD, to make it faster. Everything seems to be working okay. The speed really increased. That, that by the way, I do that as a great way to increase the performance of your laptop with this solid-state drives, and the prices are coming down. But I'm worried that I may have possibly damaged something while swapping the drive. What happened was I forgot to remove the battery. Oops. And I completed the whole procedure while it was still inside the laptop, which means there was actually was actually connected to electricity. Is there a chance I could have damaged something? <laughs> or yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, while I was doing that. It seems okay, but I'm just a little worried now, Dave and Chantilly. Well, Dave, I believe your laptop's going to be fine. The fact that it turned on, it's working, probably means you didn't damage it. You didn't mention whether you powered down the machine before swapping the drives. I assume that you would have done that because you'd have to close the lid You'd have to close the lid, to, you know, to remove the um, to remove the, uh, the 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 hard drive because that comes out of the bottom of the um, of the laptop. And if, and if you've turned off the power, it's highly unlikely that anything inside your laptop sustained any damage while you're working on the inside. However, if the laptop were accidentally powered on while you're removing the hard drive, it is possible that a that a momentary power spike could cause some damage. So it's always good practice, as you know now, to remove the battery before you do anything internal to a laptop. But I think your device is going to be just okay. We got an email from Kevin in Noakesville. Dear Doc and Jim, I occasionally download a file from the Internet. I'm worried that I might be downloading malware into my computer. Is there a way to scan the file before I open it to make certain it is clean? Love the podcast, Ken in Noakesville. Well, you can scan a single file, Kevin. What you do is that you, what you want to do before you scan the file, you don't want to uh, open the file. That's what you want to do. So you can save the file to your, to your hard drive, and then you can right-click on the file, and, and a menu will pop up, and it will say, "Scan with your antivirus software," and you can just scan that one file, and and so then before you open it up, so you can you can also configure your antivirus software to scan any new files that show up on your hard drive. You know. You know, as soon as they show up, but if it, just in case that's not set up, you just right click and you can scan it. Now that assumes that your antivirus software is going to pick up the virus. Now you know there are a lot of viruses, a lot of new viruses, and so maybe it would be good to scan that file with seventy antivirus software programs, everyone that's out there, all the latest and greatest, and then you'd really know they're as good. So you do have a second option. You can go to a website, Virus Total. 
VirusTotal.com. And VirusTotal inspects items with over 70 antivirus scanners and URL domain blacklisting services. You just drag the file you wish to scan into the selection box, or you can choose the file and navigate to it. And then you basically upload the file to VirusTotal, and they will scan it with 70 antivirus programs. And then they'll give you a summary report. Then you'll really know whether that works. That is a great service. It's free of charge. Just go to www.virustotal.com. We got an email from Michael in New Jersey. Dear Doc and Jim, I have a Facebook friend that is annoying, <laughs> and their posts are getting on my nerves. They post hundreds of status updates every day filled with meaningless comments. Hey, do you like my donut that I just got here? Do you like how my cappuccino looks? You know, you've seen people, they just yeah. post every 10 minutes. Is there a way to block these posts without actually unfriending them? Because they are my friend. They're just annoying me. Mm -hmm. Michael in New Jersey. Well, Michael, you don't have to unfriend a problem friend on Facebook to keep their posts out of your newsfeed. You simply unfollow them. Now, simply go to your annoying friend's timeline, hover your mouse over the following button, and then a little menu comes up, and you select unfollow at the bottom of the drop-down menu. And his or her post will no longer show up in your news feed, which is pretty nice. Now, your friend, because they're still a friend, they'll be able to tag you in posts. They'll be able to post directly to your timeline. They'll be able to send you private messages. But you are not going to see a 100 Status updates every day on your timeline. So that's probably the best way to do it. Just unfollow them. Don't unfriend them. Listen, we love your emails. Do indeed. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. And you can find us on the web at stratford.edu. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Daniel Stewart Butterfield. Daniel Stewart Butterfield is a Canadian entrepreneur best known for being co-founder of the photo-sharing website Flickr and of the team messaging application Slack. Butterfield was born in Lund, British Columbia in 1973, and he grew up there for three years. And he, and he grew up there, and for the first three years of his life, he lived in a log cabin without running water while in a commune. You see, back in uh, 1968, his dad uh, dodged the Vietnamese draft for the Vietnam War, and he crossed the border into Canada, and he went living in a commune. There he met his uh, future wife. They got married in the commune, and uh, and Daniel was was born there in the commune. And they, you know, in the beginning, they they just you know they were they were okay in a log cabin without running water. But but when uh, but when uh, when Daniel was five years old, his parents thought you know maybe we better better get a regular life and get plumbing. So they moved to Victoria, British Columbia. They went to the Julian Assange School of uh, Personal Hygiene, apparently. That's right. Now, as a kid, Butterfield taught himself how to code. He always liked to play around with computers. He, he was educated at St. Michael's University School in Victoria. He made money while he's going to going to school. Um, that, that was really high school, uh, uh, designing, um, designing websites. He, re- he received a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. Because, you see, he was, you know, growing up in a commune with his, you know, his parents' hippies. He was into philosophy of life. So he got a Bachelor of Arts in philosophy from the University of Victoria in 1996. In 1998, he got a Master of Philosophy from Cambridge, where he specialized in the philosophy of biology, the philosophy of cognitive science, and the philosophy of the mind. He was really trying to become the total man. Renaissance man. Yes. Mm-hmm. In 2000, he, uh, with a friend, he, he built a startup called Grad Finder. It was, a, I guess it was uh, for, grad, for grad school. And so he, um, he, he had a startup, and they, they, they did that for a while. And they, they sold it for a few bucks after a year, and then for a few years. And after they sold gradfinder.com, he worked as a freelance web designer. Now in 2000 he you know he went from he, he went on vacation from uh, um, uh, from Canada down to San Francisco and that's where he met Katharina Fake Katharina Fake uh, uh, he she was a blogger there in San Francisco he he kind of liked her he said why don't you come back to Canada with me so Kater- <laughs> Katharina Fake we got this great log cabin that's right no that, yeah so Katharina Fake had went back to Canada with him and they got married in 2002 actually. Wow. Uh, in 2002, his dream was to make a massive online multiplayer game. So they funded Ludicorp. Ludicorp, mm-hmm. he did it with Katarina Fake, his, uh, his new wife, and Jason Klassen, who's a, um, who's a programmer. And they began working on this massive multiplayer online game called Game Neverending. Mm. They worked on this thing. They worked on it. They worked on it. And it was a beautiful game, but they couldn't get anybody to play it. So while it was a gaming success, it was a financial failure. And so that they so they said, okay, we've we've got this great game, we've got all this great technology. What are we gonna do with it? 
So it turned out that they had created a lot of features that were really interesting. They 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 created a way for um, for players to upload images to the game so they could change the background. They actually created a system where you could you could have friends on the website and you know and, and having friends. This was before Facebook days, and so and you, so you, you you could have friends. Uh, they they had uh, you could you could share things. You could chat. They had all kinds of social media, advanced social media features built into the game just as a byproduct of building the game. Hmm. So what they did, they said, well, why don't we just break out these features that are kind of interesting? So they broke out those features and they created a photo sharing website called Flickr where you could you could upload photos, you could, you could share things. And, and so Flickr had – a lot of really advanced features. They had like a data share API, application programming interface, the first that ever been done because they figured what good is data if you can't share it? And if people use data, you get more out of it. And so using this data share API, that data was was accessible to people, to developers and others to do things with it. They invented tagging, you know, way long before Facebook was ever around where you tag a picture. They invented hashtags, which are used by, you know, used by Twitter now. And so he felt that data should be shared. He he basically these are all ideas that, that, that came from the commune, you know, everything is like <laughs> public property. Mm-hmm. And we just share and share alike. And that was the whole idea of this. And they created some really advanced, advanced techniques. And so Flickr became very popular because of all these advanced tech, uh, all these advanced techniques, and it was very scalable. And in March two thousand and five, um, they um, they sold it. They sold it to Yahoo for either it's between twenty two and twenty five million dollars. We're not really sure. Did they share any of that money? They yeah. could share it with me. Yeah, they. I think they. I don't think they had investors in this thing. I, I. I just think that the three of them split the money, twenty-five million, twenty-two to twenty-five million, and it turned out Butterfield stayed on as general man manager of Flickr. Funny and, how the sharing thing works only until it gets the money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And then you know after you know after they got the money, he and Katarina only stayed together for another six years, and then boom, they they split. Mm. But um, he left. He left Yahoo July twelfth, two thousand and eight. But this Flickr, and I, I love Flickr. I, I, I use Flickr. It's really a, it's really well written. But but you know, as always, when Yahoo buys a company, they ruin the company, and so <laughs> and so it got over time, and all the people left, and the then the innovation just got sucked out of it. But mm-hmm. but it was it was a great product, and I I've, I still use it. But it just it but the innovation cycle just just ended. Get this: in two thousand and six, Daniel was named. Uh, <clears throat> In the time in the Time 100 list, Times list of the 100 most influential people in the world, and he appeared on the cover of Newsweek magazine. So this Flickr was really ahead of its time uh, when he developed it. And he and he said, you know, he always regretted. He said, you know, we sold out too soon. They they could have they could have kept Flickr, probably sold it for a billion dollars, and they sold it for 25 million. So he <clears> said, you know, we we sold out too soon. We didn't know what we were doing. So and he and he never did build the game that he that he wanted, but that was his dream. So he, um, I think he and Katarina they stayed married until two thousand and seven, and then they got a divorce. Uh, and now he's uh, he's on he's on the market again. Now after <laughs> after quitting Yahoo, he started another company called. 
tiny speck. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't say this. When he was in the commune, his his middle name wasn't Stuart. It was Dharma. Ah. It's more of a hippie name. It is very hippie. He was Daniel Dharma Butterfield. And um, and when he was 12 years old, he looked at his dad. He says, Dad, this Dharma's got to go. And his dad said, okay, what do you want? He said, I want Stuart. So he changed his, so he changed his name to Daniel Stuart Butterfield instead of Daniel Dharma Butterfield. Interesting. And so, and he goes by the name, Stuart's his middle name, but that's the one he picks. So he, he goes by Stuart when people just talk to Stewie. him. Stewie. Stewie, yeah. So after he quit Yahoo in 2008, he started another company, Tiny Spec. And he said, we're going to finish this never-ending game. We're going to really knock it out of the park because, uh, you know, I got this whole Flickr thing was a sidetrack. I'm going to go back to my true dream. So he, they started – so he started Tiny Spec to actually work on the – and the, the version of never-ending and never-ending game that they did this time, they called it Glitch. So they started working on Glitch. And this Glitch, it had amazing graphics. It had a great imaginative storyline. He just thought, this game is fantastic. <laughs> it is going to take over the world. He raised $17.5 million, and the game finally launched in 2012. To and? A, to a thud. <laughs> they couldn't get anybody to use it. Now, the <laughs> game was a huge success, but it was a financial failure, so they sh- shut it down in 2012. So then he went back to the team. He says, hey, guys, what, what are we going to do now? And so it turned out that they would created a lot of great technology uh, in making Glitch. So they they a lot of they had a lot of collaboration tools and instant messaging and communication methods that they'd embedded into Glitch. So Butterfield he says, you know, why don't we take all this interesting stuff that we're, that we created to make um, Glitch, you know, work and, and interact with the users, and let's pull it out and make it into something else. Mm-hmm. So they did that again, and they came up with a program called Slack. And it's an instant message-based team communications tool. And, uh, and Slack took the market by storm. I mean, within like three months, they, they had like 120,000 users on it. And people loved it. Because what it did, see, everybody at all these companies, they have, they, they have Dropbox, they've got Google Apps, they've got GitHub, GitHub they've got... Heroku, they've got Zendisk, all these applications. And then somebody says, oh, I'd like to, you know, and you try to interact with people. Everything is scattered everywhere. You know, you share a Dropbox file, you share a Google, this file, you share, you know, a Microsoft Drive file. And so what Slack does, all of your resources, it knits together all of your resources into one hub, and it becomes the center of all your business activity. Moreover, if somebody makes a comment on one of your on one of your um, uh, documents, uh, Slack saves it. Hmm. And so no matter where they make a comment on your documents, you can – and they've got this great search engine. You can search through the comments, and it's very easy for teams to interact. This thing was so powerful and so well-written that once people started using it, more and more and more people started using it. And then businesses started using it because it made team building so much better. So Slack just started taking off. So it was released. It was public, re, publicly released February of 2014, 
and Slack grew at a weekly rate of 5 to 10 percent. It had more than 120 users by August of 2014. So that'd be February, March, April, May, June, July, by six months. That was, And most of those were just word of mouth. By 2014, Slack had earned $1.5 million because he actually had a paid version if he wanted to have more features. It was already earning money. He raised $60 million in venture capital because everybody thought, hey, this Slack is really good. By 2015, he raised another $340 million in venture capital. By that time, by 2015, he had 2 million daily users, and 570,000 of those users were paid users. In 2015, Slack was named by Inc. Magazine as the company of the year. Slack is just taking over businesses by storm. In 2015, Stewart was named Wall Street Journal's technology innovator and was awarded TechCrunch's founder of the year, Crunchy. Now... Is that chocolate enrobed? Yeah, so it is crunchy. Yeah, they they also get, they 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 give lots of crunchies every year. He he always felt though that he sold Flickr too early. Now he wants to build Slack into something as pervasive as Microsoft, except something that you can love. Ah, <laughs> gotcha. And so here you go, uh, Daniel Stewart Butterfield, formerly known as Daniel Dharma Butterfield. <laughs> uh, Always wanted to build a multi-user game. Never actually successfully did. Oh, by the way, the 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 second game I didn't mention at that uh, glitch. They released the entire game as an open source product, so anybody could use it. So now there's an open source community that's building on that game, and it'll probably be released as an open source non non revenue generating game. So at least all of their work was not wasted. So Daniel Stewart Butterfield is a man who knows how to build scalable software. In both companies, he had to pivot in order to make money. Ah, there you go. There you go. Everything you want to know about Daniel, Daniel Stewart Butterfield. Hope you're paying attention because you can take that knowledge, just impart it upon you free of charge, and turn it into free food by playing the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m., 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. We're all part of the Federal News Network. You can follow us at uh, WFED Tech Talk on Periscope and watch us do the show. Learn more about the programs at Stratford by University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. From Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, the security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thank you for tuning in this Saturday morning to Tech Talk Radio. It is time for us to play the pop quiz, where you can take knowledge you've gained here on the show and turn it into free lunch. We just finished talking about Daniel Stewart Butterfield and profiles in IT. He grew up in a commune in Canada, and he's also the co-founder of the photo-sharing website Flickr. Based on his experiences of growing up in a commune, he invented several advanced social media features that are used every day on sites like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's question, name just one of these features. Wow, Jim, a multiple choice question. That's an advanced teaching feature. If you at home think you've got one of those answers, now's the time for you to pick up your phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're posting pictures on Flickr in your log cabin in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line, 877-936-39333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for price distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your call, so... Dial now. Let's talk about this rechargeable battery that can last 400 years. In 2016, a battery that lasts a whole lifetime was created by Mia Lee Tai, a former Ph.D. student from UC Irvine, University of California, Irvine. She made the discovery while studying the properties of gold nanowire for commercial batteries. Typically, gold filaments lose their integrity and the battery dies after 5,000 or 6,000 cycles. Now, nanowire is a thousand times thinner than a human air. The increased surface area of the microscopic wires allows greater storage and transferring uh, transferring capacity for electrons. Researchers have been trying to use the material for a long time, but it ages because it's so fragile. By coating the gold nanowire with a type of electrolyte gel... Ty was able to create a circuit that withstood 200,000 charge cycles in the span of three months, during which time there was no loss in performance, nor were there any nanowires fractured by repeated use. My said she was just playing around. <laughs> the thing worked when she put this gel on. Now, Ty's invention could eventually lead to commercial batteries that never require replacement. Wouldn't that be great for a cell phone? That would be fabulous just, for a whole lot of things. Man, I would just love it. They could be used to power everything from computers to phones to cars to appliances. You see, battery technology is holding us back in a lot of fronts. Mm-hmm. That is a huge breakthrough. And it was just, it was just um, you know, uh, uh, she was just playing around. It was just an accident almost. Now, researchers at UV Irvine still don't know why the electrolyte gel preserves the nanowires, and they're doing additional research. And it's going to take a few years before they can scale this technology 
for commercial use. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday morning on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2, on the web at stratford.edu and federalnewsnetwork.com. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. You know, we're, we're running some statistics on the uh, Podcast One distribution. Really? 30, the, the show's been listened to on Podcast One 32,000 times. Mm-hmm. And it, this is the distribution. 86% of the downloads are from the U.S., and the other countries include Germany, UK, Canada, and Australia. Within the U.S., 65% of the downloads are from California. Interesting. Silicon and, Valley? Yeah, Silicon Valley. And that's followed by Maryland, Virginia, New York, and Texas. These are all tech hubs. And so, you know, down in Texas, a big tech hub. Up in New York, there's a big population of international students, a tech hub. And, of course, Maryland to Tech Hub because that's local. So it was an interesting distribution. So that's 32,000 times since when? I don't know. This <laughs> <was> a, <clears throat> since Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> since the, I think they just started gathering the they – just, they just came out with Podcast One. Not, mm-hmm. They just started that – just started sending them over to Podcast One not too long ago. So it's – You've been on Apple oh. – um, is it what is it? Uh, what's the Apple app? Uh, th- that was the place where you were. I'm, right? I'm on Apple iTunes. Plus, yes. plus we we've got the podcast file on the Stratford website. So we've so it's actually in two two locations. Can you can you check and see what kind of listenership we have on either I'll, of those? Yeah, I'll check on. I don't that, I don't have because that. I know you've been on those for a long time. I've been on those for a while. So mm-hmm. so it, it turns so it just occurred to me Stratford because we have so many people listening in other areas. We've got a very robust online program. Mm-hmm. So we have all of our IT programs online. We've embedded in a lot of projects. We've got some built-in certifications right in those online programs. We've got a lot of projects. We have streaming applications where people that do their online program, they they have access to install, you know, they've got virtual machines. They've got uh, they've got a, a thin desktop. All the applications that they need, they, they when they log into the system, all their applications show up. The IT students have access to, to to several virtual machines online where they can upload different operating systems and test them out. 
They can remotely configure uh, routers and switches online. So even though you're doing an online class, it's like you're in the classroom because we have all the resources right online. So we got great, great online programs. And in our business programs are we got a lot of built-in simulations, so you really do real things in life. And so it's uh, it's really a, our online programs are just a lot of fun. So it just we don't really talk about it that much. But no. now that I see all where all the podcast distribution, we got sixty five percent of the U.S. people are in California. We got other countries. Um, a, a lot of the a lot of the listenership in um, in on the Stratford University website is from India because we have so many students from India and around the world. So it's uh, you know. It's hard to get students to get up at 9 o'clock Saturday morning after, you know, heavy partying Friday night. On Friday night, okay. But they can listen to a podcast anytime. True, and 9 o'clock East Coast, uh, for the that's true. Well, there you go. You can listen to the podcast on the West Coast anytime you want. I'm thinking about listening to us live. Because I'm a live kind of guy. I know it's, uh, but you know, you've got it. Well, I'd I'd say the older demo is going to be listening to us live, probably so, <laughs> on, yes. on average. Tens of thousands of phones that are donated to charity are destroyed every year. Really? Yeah, and they're and they're destroyed by electronics recyclers be, and instead of being you know given away like they were supposed to have been done. It turns out that the iPhone has an activation lock, which is an anti-theft feature that prevents new accounts from logging into the system without first putting in the original iCloud password. Now, they Apple did this so that if a phone is stolen, it can't be used by someone else who, who stole it and didn't have the, the, the password. So that makes stolen phones less valuable. I think mm. it is really a good feature. Yeah. But you see, if you're going to donate your phone, you've got to remove that lock. If you don't remove the lock, there's... The phone's useless. The phone's useless, and all they can do is just put it in a shredder. So between 2015 and 2018, the Wireless Alliance, uh, uh, a recycling program, collected about 6 million cell phones in donation boxes. It turned out that 333,000 of them were worth worth being... were were reusable. But of those 333,000, 33,000 were iCloud locked, and they just had to... Shred them. So they've asked Apple if there would be a way that a certified reseller could unlock phones that have been legitimately donated and that if, a, if they could prove that the phone had been donated, whether Apple would unlock it. They're trying to do that. But mm-hmm. for those of you that are donating your cell phones for charity, make certain to unlock them first. This is funny. I mean I'd never heard of this before. Had you before you came across this? No, uh-uh. obviously a lot of people don't know about it. Cause... But it, but I, but it means that that anti-theft feature is actually effective. Yeah, that which is. I, which I do like. Thousands of employees are listening to your Alexa conversations. Not only is Alexa listening to you speak when you know into your Echo smart speaker, but also an Amazon employee may be also listening too. Amazon employs a global team to transcribe the voice commands captured after. The wake word is detected and feeds them back into software to help improve Alexa's grasp of human speech. Amazon reports reportedly employs thousands of full-time workers and contractors in several countries, including the U.S., Costa Rica, Romania, to listen to as many as a thousand audio clips in shifts that last up to nine hours. Amazon confirmed to CNN Business that it hires people to listen to what customers say to Alexa, but Amazon said we take security and privacy very very uh, seriously, the company um, uh, only notes that only a small, extremely small number of interactions from ra- from a random set of customers are viewed. 
And the report said that Amazon doesn't explicitly tell Amazon if it employs. Oh, the other thing is it doesn't. People don't really know that that people are listening in. Amazon just says that we have methods to improve the speech recognition to make it a better service for you. Okay. Now, people can opt out on it if they want to, but it's very hard to figure out how to do that. Project Kuiper, that's Amazon's high-speed satellite internet. Amazon plans to build a massive network of 3,000-plus satellites to provide high-speed internet access for the masses. The project is intended to give a big boost to broadband speeds, connectivity, and low latency so that people who lack access in the developing world can get it. The Constellation is planned as a network of 784 satellites in the lowest altitude. That would be 590 kilometers. They'll have 1,296 satellites at the next higher altitude. That would be 610 kilometers. The remaining 1,156 will be floating at the highest at 630 kilometers above the Earth. If all goes well, Project Kuiper will have a reach within its broadband coverage to, to cover 95% of the global population. Project Kuiper gets its name from the region in the solar system that exists beyond the eight major planets. Interesting. I was going to ask that. The Kuiper belt is similar to an asteroid belt in that it contains many small bodies, all of which are remnants of the solar system's formation. In November, Amazon announced it would build 12 ground stations to transmit data to and from the satellites, indicating a grander space ambition. With this project, Amazon is going to join other big and small names in the race to build a global, affordable broadband network. SpaceX, as well as Airbus-backed OneWeb, have already announced similar projects. So this is going to change Internet access around the world. That's it for this week. Tune in next week for more Tech Talk Radio. Heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. And on the web at federalnewsnetwork.com. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. Tech Talk Radio is a presentation of Stratford University and Dr. Richard Schertz. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.